As we get uh, ready to pray, be sure and pray for our children and workers that are in the nursery and help them out if you can. We always need volunteers and pray for these little ones as they go to Children's Church and those who will be uh, teaching them and sharing the gospel with them. And uh, pray for our Hispanic ministry and pray for Brother Max and all of the wonderful people that are involved in that. And uh, tonight we'll be doing the uh, Lord's Supper. And so uh, come early and come and prepare your heart by just being quiet before the Lord and reading the story of the crucifixion and letting that just sink in. In other words, kind of marinate in the gospel tonight and what Jesus has done for you so that you're ready whenever we uh, receive the elements and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim his death until he comes. And then uh, be thankful for the work that God has done in people's lives and uh, people that have been sick, that have been healed, and people that have been sustained as they go through chemotherapy and things like that. And uh, also to just be thankful and grateful that as we go through tough times, God is with us. Um, Brother Ron Coley baptized his wife just a minute ago. But he's also going through a rough time. His brother, Jim, uh, has about maybe 30 days or so to live. And uh, he's got cancer and it's spread. And so pray for uh, Ron as he goes through this and pray for his brother. And you can think of so many other people that are going through tough times and trials. Um, Patty Seitz has COVID in her house right now. So pray for them. And uh, you've got lost people, lost Family members, uh, I would be praying for my children if they were lost very, very regularly. That should not just be a Sunday thing or something you think of every once in a while. You ought to be praying to God because He is their only hope, right? And uh, as you pray for school children, think about what they are facing. Those things that you see on the news that you go, Oh, what is this world coming to? That is normalcy for a lot of our kids. They don't consider it weird or strange at all because they've been bombarded with all of that and they think it's the way it is. And some of them, sadly, even think that it's cool. Only God is the answer for those kind of uh, situations. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? I'll let the Holy Spirit move in your heart as to who you need to pray for and what you need to pray about. It may be you and maybe you need to get saved this morning and confess Christ as Savior and Lord, and then profess Him in the waters of baptism as well. And uh, I pray for you in that situation. So go where you need to go. If you want to come to the altars, if you want to get with somebody and just let them know you love them and you're praying for them, if you want to send a text to somebody, this is uh, time to do that. But do it for the glory of the Lord above everything else. Okay? Let's go to prayer. Now take this time to pour out your heart before your loving God who invites you to speak to Him.
Father, the old song says, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Please forgive us when we forget the privilege that we have to pray to you because of what the Son of God did in our place for us, to make us righteous before you and to give us an audience with you because we are priests unto God. We don't need anybody to go in between you and us. We can come straight to you because Christ is our mediator and he is our high priest. What a, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And when we think about praying for everything, we could also maybe change one word in that. What a privilege to carry everyone to God in prayer. And it doesn't matter whether it's the President of the United States or a member of Congress, whether it's a governor or a member of the state legislature, whether it is a mayor or a member of a city council or a school board or a Supreme Court judge or somebody that is the leader of a foreign hostile nation. doesn't matter. We can pray anytime, anywhere about anything and for anyone. So, Lord, we pray that we would remember to give you praise for who you are, not just what you do, that's important, but for just who you are, sovereign, holy, loving, powerful, compassionate, saving, forgiving. We could go on and on. But to praise you, Lord, and to thank you that you have applied those things to us and to our lives. And we thank you for your wonderful, inexplicable grace and mercy toward us. We pray that we wouldn't forget to confess our own sin. We can see the sin of other people and the sin of the world around us, but that's really not our main issue. Our main issue is our sin, our pride, our greed, our lust, our discontentment, our pride. We could go on and on with that as well. And we thank you for 1 John 1, 9. We want to pray, Lord, that we would look at what you've already done and all of the things we already have and enjoy. And we would give you thanks. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And may we live in that will that you have for us to be thankful, grateful people for everything that you have done and everything that you have given us. And again, especially for our salvation. And then, Father, may we never forget to pray for others as they struggle. To pray for others as they are beaten up by the enemy. Pray for others as they stumble and fall. Even though it may be their own fault, we still should pray for them and love them because we've done the same thing. And we pray that you would provide for the needs of those we love. We pray that you would give comfort. We pray you would give strength. We pray you would give healing. We pray that you would provide material possessions. And we pray that it would all be done so that all of us are absolutely convinced that we serve a true and living God who is powerful and yet who loves us with an everlasting love. When we have a testimony and a story to tell other people so that we can magnify you wherever we go and point them to Jesus Christ and the wonderful gospel. So Lord, we want to say as we close, 
We love you. Thank you for loving us. And may you be praised through this sermon, through our listening and through our response. And by the way, the word changes our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in 1 Thessalonians this morning. And uh, we're in chapter 2. So we are uh, moving along here and uh, getting to the place where we need to go. Paul is going to tell us some things about his coming to Thessalonica. And uh, he's doing this in response to some accusations that are going to be made. And we'll make reference to some of those. But as we read the text this morning, just kind of read between the lines. If Paul makes a statement, this is how we came, well, then you know what the accusation was, the opposite. This is what we did, and you know what the accusation was. Because remember, he had just been through a rough, rough stint of ministry and uh, things here. He had gone to Philippi, <clears throat> and when he was there, he met Lydia. Remember, the, by the river, there were not enough men there to make a Jewish synagogue. So he went to the place of prayer by the river, and uh, there Lydia was saved. And what a wonderful thing that was. And he's going into the synagogue, and give him credit, they received him at least for three Sabbaths. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament, how Jesus is the Christ. Don't think that the Old Testament has a different way of salvation. It doesn't. It points to Jesus and to the grace of God and his substitutionary death. And so uh, he does that. And then, uh, remember, he cast that demon out of that woman who uh, was uh, a fortune teller who was making money for the people who owned her. And when that happened, then their uh, money is gone. And so they get upset. There's a riot there. And uh, they are cast into prison illegally after being beaten severely. And uh, then they are let go. And so they go to Thessalonica. And when they go there, what do they do? They go into the synagogue, kind of the same song, second verse. They reason from the scriptures with the people in the synagogue how Jesus is the Christ. And uh, then what happens? Well, they can't stay there very long. There's an uproar again. And so they have to leave. Now, you would think by this point, somebody, if they were normal, would kind of back off. They'd just quit. They'd keep their mouth shut. They'd lay low. They would go under the radar, so to speak. And what do they do when they go to Berea? Go into the synagogue, reason with the people there out of the scriptures how Jesus is the Christ. And uh, the people there, at least, the Jews in the synagogue, it says were more noble than the Thessalonians. I can't say that. Because they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were true. Now, as Paul does this, think about the repetition of prison, the repetition of persecution, the repetition of running for your life, the repetition of riots and problems and endangerment, all of those kind of things. And I just want to ask you a question. How long would you last? And then when you combine that with people that are saying all sorts of things that are untrue about you, how long would it take before you just quit? And you said, this isn't working. You know the old saying, um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. 
And so we'll find as we look through this, this is one of the things they said about Paul. He's crazy. He's delusional. He's out of his mind. How long would it take for you to quit? And yet Paul is just such a faithful, faithful man. And he's the kind of leader that we would all want to follow. We would all like to have a dad like this. We would all like to have a pastor like this. We would love to have a boss like this. We would love to have political leaders like this. I mean, this is the mark of the ones who are really effective over the long term. We have a lot of people, even in the church, that they're good for a short-term thing. There may be a quick burst of enthusiasm, and then they leave, and then they go somewhere else. Then they are doing something else, or they're abandoning and moving on to another ministry because they don't really put their hand to the plow and not look back. They want everything to be microwave. They want it to be instant. And if it's not, then they just kind of give up. Well, Paul wasn't like that. Paul didn't see a lot of the fruit of his ministry. In fact, even here in Thessalonica, you remember, he uh, had to leave so quick that when he's in Athens, he's thinking, what is going on with them? Have they grasped it? Were they truly saved? Are they growing in the Lord? How will they make it without good discipleship and good doctrine? What, what's happening? So he sent Timothy back, and then he was overjoyed to hear that their faith, they had become an exemplary church, as we saw in uh, chapter 1, and we're witnessing for the Lord. And so Paul now goes into... Um, I guess to try to comfort them, to say uh, basically this in these verses we're going to read, you've heard a lot of things about me, and I want you to not just take my word for it, but think about what you know about us, and that the accusations are not true. Because Paul knew that the way that the enemies would discredit the message is to discredit the messenger. And so Paul is not simply defending himself, but he is defending the gospel that they had believed and defending their credibility because they had heard his word and to defend the validity of their salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he has in mind. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, three verses, 1 through 3. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. The word vain there means empty. It's like when your kids have bubbles and they play in the backyard and they blow the bubbles and they have a gigantic one. Boy, it's impressive. Then it pops and it's gone. The word vain means like a soap bubble, just empty, gone. And so you know our coming was not empty or a soap bubble, or just gone. Verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully or shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now he had said to them, they received the word in much affliction, Paul said, yeah, that means we preached it in much conflict as well. Verse 3, For our exhortation, our message, did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. 
So when we look at Paul and we look at him and we say, was he effective? Was he effective? Now you and I know enough of the story to go, oh my goodness, yes. But the Thessalonians didn't. And the people in Athens didn't. And the people in Jerusalem didn't. Maybe the people in his own hometown didn't. And yet Paul said, I know that our labor is not in vain. Paul didn't always see the fruit. He didn't always see the harvest of what he was doing. But he knew it wasn't in vain. And like a farmer who plows his field and then plants the seed, and then he looks back a week later and he doesn't see anything and he doesn't get a harvest, he knows it's not in vain. He knows that the seed is sprouting. He knows that the little tender plants that are coming up that are so vulnerable, he knows that they're going to bear fruit eventually. And he knows this in the Christian life. And so I'd say to you, Sunday school teacher, maybe you didn't see anybody weeping this morning. Maybe you didn't see anybody saying, wow, I've got to bring all my friends and they've got to hear this again. Maybe you didn't get the response you were looking for, but it's really not response to you that matters as much as it is we know that the word of the Lord does not return void, we're told. We know that our labor is not in vain. And the mark of an effective leader like Paul is they have a positive attitude toward their ministry. Paul said, we know that our coming was not empty. It was not just show. It was not just like a giant bubble that pops and is gone. It was real and it meant something. Yeah, it was a short time. Yeah, there weren't any big numbers. Yeah, there was nothing really to brag about when it comes to the work in Thessalonica that they could see. But when Timothy came back to him and said, Paul, there's a thriving church there. It's amazing. They're carrying on. And they're believing what you preach to them. And they are living it and they are sharing it with other people. And you remember in chapter 1 he said that we go to other places and we start to tell the story, your story. And they're telling us what it was because the Thessalonians shared their story of how they were saved. How they received the word of God. So much so that he said the gospel sounds forth from you. In other words it became an echo chamber. Now, you don't have to have very many people for the gospel to begin to echo. One person can make a pretty good echo. But the cool thing about it is, as it echoes, other people began to join in. And so Paul would be telling us, have a positive attitude about your ministry. Have a positive attitude about your praying. Have a positive attitude about your teaching. Have a positive attitude about your encouragement to other people because your labor is not in vain when it is in the Lord. And those who are going to be effective for God know this and they understand this because there's a warfare going on, there's a battle that is going on, there is opposition going on that comes from all kinds of ways, but it is propelled by the demons of hell and inspired by the demons of hell. And so we know that we're not always going to feel good while we're ministering. It's not always going to be fun. Sometimes it is called uh, uh, planting, which is slow, and hard 
and you have to water, and you have to wait, and you have to fight pests. Sometimes it's called a battle, and you have to be a soldier, and you carry your pack, and you carry your weapons, and you march, and you train, and you're tired, and you're hungry, and you're thirsty, and sometimes it seems that the battle will never end. But we shall reap, the Bible says, if we faint not. And that's going to come down to attitude. What are you thinking? When you invite somebody to come to church with you and they turn you down, is that the only time you ask? Is that the only time that you pray? Is that the only time that you're burdened about that person? Or do you carry that burden in prayer? Do you keep looking for opportunities to invite them again? Do you ask and trust the Lord for open doors? Something may happen to them. They may go through a trial. They may go through a sickness or something like that. And you have an open door to reestablish contact with them. Do you keep your faith up and stay optimistic that even though you can't see it, God is still at work knowing that our coming was not in vain. You know that our coming to you was not in vain. And in spite of what may happen in previous experiences, we talk a lot about our past. I have a lot of baggage. I have a lot of scars. What do you think Philippi did to Paul and Silas and Timothy? What do you think about the real scars that they had on their backs from a severe beating? What do you think about their memories from being in prison? What do you think about the fact that it was illegal And their rights were violated. How do you think that that affected them? And yet, what do you find them doing? They kept their hand to the plow. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, it didn't matter. They kept on, and they kept on, and they kept on, and they did it with the right attitude. We know that Our coming was not in vain, even though the numbers weren't big, and even though the time was short, and even though we had to leave because of the conflict. And I don't think it was just that Paul said, Ooh, it's too hot here, I can't handle it. I think it's because he knew that his presence in town made it worse on the believers. And I think his concern was for their well-being, and that's at least part of the reason why he left and why he was so concerned enough to check back in on them because he knew there was a greater purpose than long stays and big numbers. Number two, there's appropriate boldness. You know, there's a time to be bold and there's a time to keep your mouth shut. There's a time to be like a lion and there's other times to be just gentle like a, like a bunny or something like that, right? There are those times where we don't know always the difference because we see some people that whenever they read that we're supposed to be bold in the Lord, they think that means they're supposed to be mean, obnoxious, a jerk. And some people read that we're supposed to be loving and to them that means we're supposed to be quiet and timid and uh, all of that. Well, I've put down the word here appropriate, appropriate boldness. Jesus said, I'm going to send you out and I want you to be wise as a serpent and at the same time harmless as a dove. 
Have you ever noticed that most of the time, instead of being both, we tend to be one or the other? We tend to be that person that other people, maybe in our family, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe in the neighborhood, they go, oh no, here comes Holy Joe. Oh no, here they come. And they don't really, they've already made up their mind and they're not really wanting to listen to us. Have you ever watched somebody when they bring up the Lord and the way that they witness, you just cringe. But at the same time, have you found yourself sort of being like a pansy in July heat? You just kind of shrink and you just kind of wilt. And that's not what the Lord is calling us to do. And that's not what Paul was calling us to do at all. You notice that Paul says here that even after the way we were treated at Philippi, that did not diminish what we did, what we said, and how we said it when we came to Thessalonica. And that's why you guys are saved. And that's what you need to do. And then when he went to Berea, he did the same thing. There was an appropriate boldness in all of this. But Paul also knew when it was time to be quiet, when it was time to leave. He knew uh, how to handle the situation. He had discernment about this. So look at verse number 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully or shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. You see, there were some things that were just not going to cause Paul to stop or to shut up. His calling from God, his commission from God, his mission from God, we would call it the Great Commission, there, there were no terms under which he would surrender or negotiate or compromise that. Now we find as we read through the book of Acts in particular, there were different ways that he approached things. He was certainly different on Mars Hill than he was in other situations. And uh, Paul seemed to know how to navigate all of that. And that's why we have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit. There are times we need to listen to other people. There are times we need to be kind to other people. And certainly we are always to be loving. Even in our boldness, it is supposed to be done not to prove that we are right or smart or on target, but because we love and because we care about them. Watch, stand firm in the faith, be mature, right? Be strengthened, but let all you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14 are the commands from Paul. Now, how to get to where you do that is one of the things you learn by watching other people. It's you, the, a thing that you learn by the way other people treat you. Paul said we were shamefully, spitefully treated in Philippi. You think that made a difference in the way he treated other people? He knew what it was like to suffer, and he was not there to heap any pain or suffering on anybody else. He knew that people, as they go through life, as they live life, they were suffering as well. And he talks about them receiving the word in much affliction. Paul could understand that. He had just been through that in Philippi and that's why he says among you we were like a nursing mother you know there are a lot of people that are losing their tenderness 
and they're losing their compassion for other people. Social media has a lot to do with that. It makes us keyboard warriors, and we're mean, and we're judgmental, and we have no idea what anybody's talking about. We just automatically assume we know. And Paul said, Paul would say to us, slow down, take a deep breath, and become more tender and become more loving in your boldness. Don't back off on the boldness. Just change the way you use it and do it out of love. Now, Paul's enemies were painting him. Uh, the reason he brings this up about uh, Philippi is they were painting him as a criminal. Okay, can you imagine? This guy named Paul told us this wonderful story and we believed it. Uh, you do know he has a police record. You do know he's a jailbird, don't you? I mean, all of these things were kind of being used to discredit everything. He had an illegal arrest, a severe beating, and there was an illegal imprisonment. And politicians trying to sweep things under the rug. Did you think that was anything new? Always been happening. Uh, would you turn to Acts 16 <clears throat> and uh, look at verses 35 through 40? And the story is told here of what happened after the Philippian jailer is saved. What happens? What's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say? Acts 16, 35. But when it was day, this is after the Philippian jailer gets saved and they're baptized, <clears throat> the magistrates sent the police, the FBI, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. He's probably excited about it, saying the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore... Come out now and go in peace. But Paul said, talk about appropriate boldness. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now, do they now throw us out secretly? Think about the irony of that. Everything you did is public. And by the way, whenever it comes to confessing your sin and making things right with another person, if you did it publicly, you ought to confess it publicly. If you didn't do it publicly, just keep it before you and God. There's no sense of making some things public, but some things need to be dealt with publicly. And that's what Paul is saying. They need to be held to a public accountability. That'd be a good word for our government, wouldn't it? And he says, no, let them come themselves and take us out. We're not leaving till they come. Well, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Yeah, I reckon. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. And that's what led them to Thessalonica. Now, let's keep in mind, had that not taken place at Philippi, had they had this great explosion of the gospel and the establishment of a great church and powerful things, and Paul could have stayed there three years, they wouldn't have gone to Thessalonica. 
You see, it's your bad times and your battles that get you out of the place where you are to where you need to be. That's not a bad thing. That is under the control of God. Well, why can't things be like they used to be? Because you wouldn't be here. And this is where you were supposed to be. And God is getting you to where he wants you to be from a Philippi to a Thessalonica. And so when he goes to Thessalonica, he preaches the gospel to them and he preaches with uh, boldness was he intimidated well if we were to read on in acts chapter 17 it says now when they had passed through amphipolis and apollonia they came to thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the jews and paul went in as was his custom so he wasn't intimidated by what happened in uh, philippi at all he just continues on doing what he's always done it didn't change him it didn't force him into something that was wrong or a different pattern of life he just did it and it was as his custom and of course as you know he did that for uh those days and of course when he went to berea uh he did exactly the same thing and uh this is just amazing to me because this is why the gospel came to europe and this is how the gospel of course got to uh, north america and uh, touched lives in the reformation and all of that it all kind of started here and the boldness the appropriate boldness of paul think about that number three there was accuracy in the message paul says for our exhortation our message did not come from error or uncleanness. Error or uncleanness. What is he talking about there? Well, uh, Paul very well could have been deceived, I guess, because we look around the world and we see a lot of people that are deceived. So uh, was Paul just deceived? Did somebody just trick him? Did somebody do that? And Paul said, no, it didn't come from any error like that. Because uh, the, uh, the idea was, you know, Paul, he had some kind of a vision or somebody lied to him or somebody tricked him. He's delusional. This is crazy talk. And of course, a lot of people think that we have lost our minds because of our commitment to Christ and our belief in the gospel, especially in this culture. And Paul said, nope, it didn't come from error. And then there was another accusation here. In my translation, it says, or uncleanness, or uncleanness. Now, that word doesn't tell us a whole lot, but it does tell us that something was wrong here, that there's something not quite right, they were saying about Paul. He's out of his mind, and, you know, he's got an ulterior motive. He's doing this for what he can get out of this. And there's so many people today, so many preachers, that they will get a lot out of you, give very little to you. And, uh, you know, you kind of wonder, are they doing it for what they can get out of it? They're becoming rich while you're giving them all of your money. And so, uh, you know, you, you, you look at this and say, was Paul kind of calculating everything and uh, working everything? Was there an ulterior motive? What really is going on in his life? Why would anybody sane why would they do this? And of course, you know, we might kind of understand that question. Paul, why do you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over in this and in your life? Are you crazy, we might say? 
Well, people were making that as a real accusation to him. In fact, that word that is translated uh, uncleanness is akatharsia, and it is a word that is generally used about sexual impropriety or impurity. So there was even the hint in the Greek word that Paul uses that there were people saying, oh, you know, he's only doing this to get your money, and he's only doing this to get sexual favors from uh, other people. And so you can't trust him, and you can't believe anything that he says. And uh, so it is just the kind of thing that is, uh, well, it's a mess, and it's confusing, and it's... um, the kind of thing that is discouraging to people because they didn't really know Paul all that well. He'd only been there three weeks. How well do you get to know somebody in three weeks? So you can see Paul's concern. But his concern was not just simply, I'm worried about what you think about me. It was, I'm concerned because whatever you think about me might be what you think about the message that we gave you. And so he is standing strong in that. And number four, notice that he is anchored in the truth. He says, nor was it in deceit. No tricks, no word games, no twisting of scripture. And when you think about Paul's testimony, it was something that, according to verse 4, they could confirm. Now this isn't the kind of thing to where you hear people today that they have all kinds of experiences that they tell you that are always unconfirmed. I heard recently about a person that says that uh, we were able to raise someone from the dead. And then he went on to say, the fresher the corpse is, the easier it is to do the miracle. Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus And he waited four days on purpose. For one thing, the body would have been decomposing. Remember, Lazarus' sister says he's been dead four days and the odor will be terrible. And secondly, because Jewish tradition taught that the soul would hover around the body for three days and then leave. And so Jesus is not saying the fresher the corpse is, the easier it is to do. He said, bring me the tough case. We'll go in a case where the body is already decomposing and after the time that you people who believe in that mysticism would say, oh, well, well, that was easier. His soul was still there. Nope, gone in four days according to them. And yet these people that try to say, oh, yeah, we've raised people from the dead. They couldn't raise a cat from the dead if they tried. And they're always unconfirmed. But oh, they sound good and they can tell a great story that nobody else could ever see. It was just me and I was the only one there and I'm the only one who saw it. You've heard those kind of things on YouTube and other places. Compare the difference. When Paul writes this, he makes this statement that changes everything. As you yourselves, what? No. Why? They had seen it. They had watched They could verify. Yep, 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 that's what he did. That's true. And that's what gave him strength. And he did that again 
for the credibility of the message of the gospel. You see, so many people today, they might say the right things about Jesus and about his death and about salvation, but they nullify it by the way that they talk, by the way that they live, by the way that they treat other people, by the way that they act when they're out in public. And they have this idea, well, I'm saved and my sins are forgiven and that won't send you to hell. Yeah, but it destroys your testimony and it destroys your credibility. And do I need to remind you? You are not an ambassador for a president. You're not an ambassador for a political party. You're not an ambassador for a cause. You're an ambassador for Christ. And everything you do must reflect well upon the Lord Jesus Christ, especially with that appropriate boldness. And so they were able to confirm it. Verse 4 says, But as we have been deemed worthy by God to be entrusted with the good news, so we speak, not as if we were speaking to please men, but rather as if we were seeking to please God who tests our hearts. At no time, as you know, did we use flattering words. At no time did we use our message as a pretext for greed to get things, sexual or otherwise. God is our witness that at no time did we seek a reputation from men, either from you or from, from others. You see what he's saying? So in conclusion, to be an effective leader, to be an effective, let's just make it like this, an effective Christian. Just consider these things and they're just a rephrasing of the points. God did not call us. Let me get to the right place here. There we go. God did not call you to futility. Okay, I want you to let that sink in. God did not call you to futility. He said that his word would not return void. And so many people today are saying, well, apparently the Bible doesn't work. I'm going to try something else. He didn't call you to that. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithful in prayer. Faithful in your holy living. Faithful in the word of God. Faithful to share the gospel. Faithful. Keep on plowing. It's not futile. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's another thing, too, with that thing about appropriate boldness. God did not call you to be a jerk. And it seems like people are just timid or they're just being a jerk. They're unkind, they're uncourteous, they're unloving, they're inappropriate in what they do. Just think and be kind. Put yourself in the other person's shoes and realize that you are representing Christ. Another thing here, God did not call you to create a new and improved or a better gospel. And boy, we're living in a world today where it seems like you can find any kind of preacher you want. And they may say they represent God and have the power of the Holy Spirit and do miracles. And then you listen to their gospel and it is pathetic. So incomplete. Twisted. Not even close to it. And it doesn't glorify and magnify Jesus Christ. And it's not the gospel of grace. God did not call you to say, you know what, this, 
has really been a failure for 2,000 years. Can you come up with a new way of saying this so that people will like it? The world's never going to like it apart from the intervention of God's Holy Spirit in their lives. Am I right about that? Act on it. And God did not call you to make a sale. You see, I've read so many evangelism training things, and they tell you how you have to start, what you have to say, and how you bring it to this conclusion, and then how you draw them in and draw the net. When I read my Bible, I kind of get the idea that I'm not the net drawer. I'm not the deal closer. I kind of get the idea that it's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. And He convinces them. He gives them faith. And He gives them life. And He's the one that draws them in. You see, if I believed what they said, then I would be marking my success or failure by how many people responded. I have nothing to do with anybody's response. That's God's job. I could also, if I got a good response, boy, I'm anointed, aren't I? Right? Or if I don't get any response, well, what am I doing this? I'm a failure. I'll just quit and do something else. I can make money selling something. I can make money in a different career. At least then, maybe I could do something for God. And there are thousands of pastors every day that are either killing themselves or they are resigning from the pastorate to go somewhere else because at least I can see the zeros on a paycheck. And I have no idea what I'm doing when I'm preaching the Word. You see why we're not effective today? Because most of the people in most of the pews in America would say amen to that. If you can't draw them in, if you can't get them to respond, you're a failure, you probably ought to leave. Well, if that's the case, I'd be gone a long time ago. And if that's the case, then what's your point of existence either? We put our hands to the plow. We don't look back and we keep on for the glory of God. For we know that in due season, I don't know when that is, do you? In due season, we will reap if we faint not. Child of God, weary and wounded Christian, don't faint. Don't quit. Don't change. Don't try to improve upon what God has said. Go back to the Word. Yes, there are different ways that we might present it, but we don't present a different gospel. We don't change it. We don't make it more palatable. We don't ignore it. We don't leave it out. We keep on keeping on. And maybe our plow nowadays is pulled by a tractor instead of a mule, but it's still plowing and it's still the gospel and the law of the harvest is still true. Some plant, some water. Two words, but God changes everything. He gives the increase. So my word to you as I finish is this. If you're not saved, <coughs> receive the word of God. Jesus died on a cross and he is the only payment for your sins and he is the full payment for your sins. 
He rose from the dead. And if you will trust him, God will put your sin on the cross and Jesus will pay for it. And he'll put Jesus' righteousness on your account and you will be right with God. And it's all by grace through faith. Will you surrender to him as Lord today and believe the gospel? I pray you will. And if you are a born-again believer, then get back to the Bible, have faith in God, be a good leader, have a good testimony like Paul did, and keep on keeping on, because we'll say it again, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Press on to the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, forgive us in those times when we want to quit when we want to give up, when we think nothing matters, when we think nothing is happening. We can't see what's happening in the hearts of people that we minister to. We have no idea what happened in the hearts of teenagers at student camp this year. We have no idea what happened in the hearts of children at children's camp. We have no idea what happened in VBS. We have no idea what happened during some of our children's activities during uh, this summer. We have no idea what happened at the last men's breakfast or the last ladies' summer share. We have no idea what happened in a Bible study. We have no idea what's going to happen just even this next week. We have no idea what is going on in the heart of that person we prayed for and that we witnessed. But our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we will reap if we faint not. Encourage our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. And let the people of God say, Amen. Amen. God bless you.